you don't know me, know me, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And man, it's a real joy for me to be able to open up the Bible with you today. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and go to Luke 24. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay because we'll read from uh, mine and then we also will have the words up on the screen. Luke 24. And while you're turning there, I want to just say a couple things. Man, if you would be praying for me, be praying for Pastor Sean, Pastor Josh, a few of our other pastors. We're all headed to a conference this next week in Kansas City. And I have the opportunity to speak at that, and I'm, I'm hoping to serve about 200 different pastors there, along with a lot of other guys. Josh will be speaking, and some other guys. So if you would pray for us this next week as we go to serve pastors and church planters, and guys that are coming fresh out of seminary, ladies coming fresh out of seminary, trying to figure out how to use their gifts, how to, how to give their lives away for what Jesus is doing in the world. So pray for that this week, and uh, just, yeah, as you think of us, I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and we will be back here next Next week, and we'll be able to hear from Pastor Josh next week as we wrap up our series that we're in. So here's what we're in. If you're not sure, if you're just kind of showing up and you need to be caught up to speed, last week we started a new series called Sacred Life. And the idea behind this series of Sacred Life is just this realization that people throughout church history have embraced that we need to recover, which is that Jesus does not give us a one-size-fits-all call of discipleship. Now, he does call all of us to himself, and he calls all of us to give our lives away and to put our lives underneath his lordship. He calls all of us to repentance. He does call all of us into some similar things, but the way in which he interacts with someone who is a teenager versus the way that, as a good father, he interacts with someone who is in their old age, nearing death, are very different. And the call of discipleship to you and your youth versus the call in your old age, those are actually very different calls and how he wants you to step towards discipleship. And there are three prayers. These, these are soul prayers that people have prayed throughout history to, to describe what God is inviting them into. So I just want to remind you of what these three prayers are. Here's the first one. The first one is, I am your bow, O Lord. Bend me lest I rot. And this is the idea that you and I, like in our youth, we, we want to give our, our, we want to try to get our lives together and we're, we're coming to the Lord saying, I'm your bow, just use me, just, just spin me. Uh, I don't want to be wasted for you. I don't want to sit here and rot. Bend me lest I rot. And this is the call from God to you to get your life together. That's the call in your youth, to get your life together. And that's what we looked at last week. If you're in your teens, your 20s, sometimes even your early 30s, it's the call to get your life together underneath the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's the second prayer. I'm your bow, O Lord. Bend me, but don't overbend me lest I break. This is the prayer that we're gonna look at today. It's the, the call of God in middle age to learn not just to get your life together, but to give your life away. And then the last prayer is, is a beautiful prayer that we're gonna look at next week with Josh's help. It's, I am your bow, O Lord, bend me, and if I break, I break. And this is the call of God to those of you in your old age as you're learning not just to give your life away, but quite honestly, what does it mean to give your death away? And, and death is something culture doesn't want to think about. We are a culture that loves to watch death on TV, but we have the least interaction personally, physically with death than any other generation, in the, honestly, in the history of the world. And so this is a topic that all of us need to sit under, whether you're young or old, because we need to learn how to die well, since it's something we're all going to do. So that's where we're headed. Next week, this week, we get a look at that second prayer. I am your bow, O Lord. Bend me but don't overbend me lest I break. This is the call of God 
for discipleship and middle age. Now, let me, let me do this. Let me define middle age because I had last week some people in their early 20s coming up saying, you know, I think I'm in the second phase of life. And, and, uh, and it's like, well, I don't know if you are. So let me define what we mean by middle age. This is anybody, generally speaking, in their 30s, their 40s, 50s, and even in, in your 60s, whether that's early 60s or late 60s. This is pre-retirement age, right? So 30s to you have not yet retired. And unless you're like killing it at the business stuff and you've retired at age 40 or 50, we're talking to all of you between the age of 30 to 60. Now don't check out if you're not in this phase. If you are younger than this, this is around the corner for you and you need to know how do you actually transition into this phase of discipleship well. Uh, This is often called the householder years of our life the householder years. It's the time of life when you are weighed down by heavy responsibilities like a job and a career and often a family. And I I, want to give a caveat here. Not everybody in this phase of life will be married or should be married. The, The Bible has a high view of singleness for sure. And you can give your life away as a single person and that's beautiful and you should. Actually in some really unique, often better ways than you can if you're married. Uh, so I'm not, I'm not excluding you, but primarily most people on average in this phase of life are married and do have kids and are weighed down by heavy responsibilities like bills and duties and deadlines. And often the, the transition from youth to this phase of life is a very jarring transition that a lot of people are not ready for. It's a jarring transition because in our youth, what's happening is we're driven by passion. We're driven by these grandiose, beautiful dreams of what our life could be and should be. And we have this vision to get to give our lives away and to, to, to make our lives matter for something bigger than ourselves. And we've got all these hopes and all these dreams. And then what happens in middle age is instead of searching for a home and searching for an identity and searching for these other things, you actually start to acquire them in middle life. You have a family now and you have kids that rely on you and you have, uh, you're not searching for a home, you have a home and you're not searching for an identity, even though sometimes there's still a search on some level, you've kind of found who you are and you're trying to figure out how to make sense of everything. And the, the struggle in middle life is very, very unique because the weight is so heavy. And, and you can kind of know that you're in this phase of life if, it's, if someone in college age years comes up to you and they're complaining about how busy their life is and, and complicated and all these things. You have this sinful urge just to punch them right in the face. Like that's one of the ways you know that you, you might be in this phase of life because you're like, you have no idea the stuff that I'm carrying. I remember thinking I was busy in college. You have no idea. Like little kids are, 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 are dependent depending on me to keep them alive. That's a weight and that's a responsibility. What is the struggle of middle life? Well, there's a lot of them, but I want to distill down four of them real briefly. And then we're going to get to Luke 24 and see what Jesus's invitation is to those of us in this phase of discipleship. The first struggle in middle age is quite honestly, just the struggle of decreased energy. Can I get a sad and tired amen from those of you in the the phase of discipleship? The, the, the decreased energy is a real thing. You, you actually are like, every day is like a marathon and just to make it home feels like you've crossed the finish line and you just plop down at the couch. And here's what's ironic about this phase of life. You actually have more on your plate than you will ever have in your entire life. This is the most busy, stressful, weighty time of your life and you have the least amount of energy to do what you're supposed to do. 
You, you, you no longer have the vitality and the strength that you had, the drivenness that you had in your youth. And it's not just a physical exhaustion. There's a real emotional toll that you're carrying, this real emotional weight, and it just makes you completely overwhelmed. One of the greatest struggles of this phase of life is just being physically and emotionally tired. So much to do, and all I want to do is take a nap. So much to get done, and, and, and all I want to do is just like seriously fall asleep because there's, there's a lot on my plate. And then when you do fall asleep, it's really sad because you wake up the next morning sore, and that never used to happen to you. You're like, how did I pull my back rolling over in the middle of the night? Th this is a real struggle in middle life. The second struggle is this. It's the struggle of what I want to call the death of the honeymoon, the death of the honeymoon. Now, he, here's what I mean. I don't just mean a marriage honeymoon between a husband and a wife, although that does count, but there are a lot of honeymoons that we experience in life. And here's what a honeymoon is. It's where we have vision and passion and all these grandiose dreams of what we want something to be, be it a career or a marriage or a church or a job or whatever. All these big dreams and visions of what it could be. And we get to start to taste that and experience that. And we think that we've acquired it. But then there comes a day where we wake up and we, we realize we didn't marry an ideal person that's going to meet every need and satisfy my every longing and name me and fill, fulfill me completely. We married a real person with, with baggage and brokenness and sin and problems. And, and we didn't land a, a dream job. Even if it is our dream job, it still has problems and there's bosses and there's deadlines and there's duties and it's a weight that we carry. And we didn't land into a perfect church, but actually because we're in church, it means we're around other people, which means we're around other sinners, which means we're around other brokenness. And, and even if we think it was perfect, we land in a church realizing, man, the honeymoon is over and now I've got to learn to live with what this really is. My, my story is like this. Like when I got married to my wife at 21, she was 20, I was 21. We had so much wisdom and knew everything. And uh, our honeymoon was amazing. And I thought, man, finally I found the person that's going to name me and fulfill me and complete complete me. And I never would have said that out loud, but that's what I was searching for in a marriage. And there came a day very quickly in marriage where I woke up and I realized I've married a sinner. She's married a sinner. And this is a lot harder than I thought. In fact, rather than me being in love with her, the first year of my marriage, I was actually in love with me. I was obsessed with me and I loved that she thought I was attractive and she wanted to marry me and she would hold my hand. I was so obsessed with me that what I really didn't love was her. I loved me. And there came a day in marriage where I realized, man, the death of the honeymoon is real, and now I get the chance to actually love who this person really is. And she gets the chance to actually love who I really am, and that selfish love gets to move into selfless love. The death of the honeymoon is a painful, painful struggle for everybody in middle life. I love these words from Ronald Rollheiser. He says, when the honeymoon dies, the big dream is over. And we realize that we can defy gravity and make love to the whole world only in our dreams because in reality, our lives come down to this singular person, this singular family, this one city, the, this too small house, this less than fulfilling job, this irritating mortgage, these non-famous friends, and this less than perfect body. Reality has broken through and we see a very limited horizon at the end of the tunnel. And this leads to the third struggle of 
middle life, and this is the struggle of disillusionment. This is the struggle of disillusionment. I think this is one of the most profoundly hard struggles for those of us in middle life because you had all these ideas and hopes and dreams of what your life could be and should be, but then you've kind of woken up and the the honeymoon is over and you've realized this is not where I thought I would be in life right now. This is not what I thought my life would look like. This is not what my marriage was supposed to look like. This was not what my faith was supposed to look like or, or all these things in my life. Everything was supposed to be different. And rather than having this young passion and zeal for Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're in this phase, you're now starting to struggle with disillusionment. Is this even real? D- does Jesus even really matter to my life? Uh, is this what I was intended to live and experience? I love the words of Henry David Thoreau. He says it like this. He says, the youth gets together his materials to build a bridge to the moon or perhaps a palace or a temple on earth. And at length, the middle-aged man concludes to build a woodshed with them. That sums up middle life. You start out, I'm gonna build a bridge to the moon. And by the time you're 40, 50, sometimes 60, you just are like, man, if I could just get a woodshed, I would be satisfied. Some of you are like, wow, this is a bummer. Like, I'm trying to do brunch later. What are you doing right now? Man, we're gonna go through some hard, painful stuff to get to the good stuff, all right? Uh, By the way, this disillusionment piece leads to what we call in culture a midlife crisis. And here's what a midlife crisis is. It's where we wake up and we think, maybe I married the wrong person. Or maybe, maybe I landed the wrong house. Or maybe I landed the wrong job. And, and all of a sudden, here's what we're really searching for in midlife. We're searching for another honeymoon. And so what we do is often, if we're not transitioning well and following Jesus in the season well, then we can blow up our entire lives and we'll go get the new car and the new spouse and upgrade the new home and all these other things. Because all we really want is just to relive that honeymoon experience one more time. And you've got to hear this if you're in middle life. Your life is not supposed to be one honeymoon after another after another after another. You get one of those and then it's just mundane day-to-day grind and that, in those little moments of your day, that's where God wants to meet you and that's where he wants to love you. You live in the mundane. That's where you live. Disillusionment sets in and this often leads to the fourth struggle of middle life and this, I think, is the major struggle, the greatest challenge of this phase. Resentment, joylessness and bitterness. People in their midlife are often marked by, whether they outwardly are expressing these emotions or internally they're just wrestling, people in their midlife on a soul level, they feel a sense of resentment. There's often a fight for joy. There's just joylessness and bitterness that sits heavy on your chest like an elephant. And and you start to think things like this. You realize, man, the meals are only gonna get cooked if I cook them. And the kids are only going to get fed if I feed them. And the mortgage is only going to get paid if I pay it. And I have the keys to the house and the keys to the car, and that's great. But I also have the heavy loan payment responsibility for both of those things. And it starts to weigh you down like a heavy burden on your back. And then you start to have an internal dialogue with yourself. Sometimes this comes out in really gross ways with the people you're close to. You'll start to think things like, and I'm always the one who has to pour out for other people. I'm always the one. uh, People don't appreciate who I am or what I have to offer. I'm taken for granted by those around me. Like they don't see what I've done. If If you knew just the half of what I've sacrificed for you, if you just saw the half of what I've given away for you, 
Some of you, it's like you've had this conversation with your spouse or someone close to you this last week. You don't even see the half of what I do. And your life is now, rather than being joyful and filled with ambition and energy and passion for life, you're honestly marked by resentment, bitterness, and it's a fight to have joy. And this is profoundly sad because actually, in many ways, this is the most beautiful time of your entire life. You're young, you're in charge, You've got all these wonderful things going for you and you're so racked with bitterness and resentment that you can't enjoy it. It's funny if you ask older people who are uh, transitioning out of retirement into even a season of getting ready and getting prepared to die. If you ask them, hey, what would you do over again? If you could relive your whole life over again, what would you do over again? One of the most common responses is, I would try to enjoy my life more. I just didn't enjoy my life. My kids were a burden, my job was a burden, my, everything was a burden, and I was marked by joylessness. Ronald Roheiser says it like this. He says, many are the persons who deeply regret that during the healthiest and most productive years of their lives, they were too driven and too unaware of the richness of their own lives to appreciate and enjoy what they were doing. Instead of privilege, they felt burden. Instead of gratitude, they felt resentment. And instead of joy, they felt anger. People have hurt you. People have said things to you. And you, you were young at one point and buoyant. You could bounce back from that. But now you're living out of your wound and you're living out of your anger and this bitterness and it's just eating you alive. This is the struggle of midlife. Now here's the question that I hope you're asking because this is the question that I want to take you to Luke 24 and try to answer. The question that I hope you're starting to ask is where is Jesus in this struggle? Where is he? And what is his invitation to me in the middle of this midlife grind and this pain and, and, and the joylessness and the, the disillusionment, not just with the world, but even with God? There's this disillusionment with my faith. Where is the Lord in the middle of the struggle? And I want to take you to Luke 24 to answer that question. Now, I want, to, I want to give you a caveat. I realize that Luke 24 was not written as a manual by Luke. It was not written as a manual for those of us in middle life. I get that. But there's a story in Luke 24 about two disciples on their way to Emmaus from Jerusalem and the struggle that they have is very similar to the struggle we have in middle life. And I think the way Jesus interacts with them is gonna actually give us an invitation and help for where we are in this story. So Luke 24, let me take you to verse 13. Here's what it says. That very day, now this is, by the way, after the death of Jesus, uh, Jesus has risen from the dead, but they don't yet know that. That very day, two of them, we're going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened, the death of Jesus. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to, uh, I'm sorry, verse 19, and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priest and our rulers that delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was 
the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the temple early, or they were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Here's the first thing that I want you to see is the encounter from Jerusalem to Emmaus. I want, I want you to see this encounter from Jesus as these disciples are headed from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Now, here's what I need you to understand, that Jerusalem and Emmaus, they're real places on a map for sure, but it's more than just a geographical spot on a map, more than like a pin drop somewhere, that Jerusalem, for Luke, the author of this, this story, he actually is trying to, to point us to something by using the city Jerusalem, and he's trying to point us to some symbolism by using this village of Emmaus. And we missed this in Oklahoma in 2018 because we're not as familiar with the context of the first century. So just allow me to briefly kind of fill you in and kind of bring you up to speed on what Jerusalem meant for the Jewish people. Jerusalem, if you read the Old Testament carefully, was the, the city of all of the promises of God coming to fulfillment in this city. If you could take all the promises of God and put them in a place, that's what Jerusalem was. It was where the temple of God was. It was where the presence of God dwelled and all these promises about the coming king who was going to rule and kick out all of the, the enemies and, 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 and have victory and bring peace and hope and shalom for the people of God. Jerusalem was in many ways kind of the epicenter of all of those promises. It was the city of hope. It was all the faith dreams that you had as a Jewish person wrapped up in a place. And these disciples, they're actually leaving Jerusalem and headed to Emmaus. And what you're meant to read between the lines is not just that they're leaving the city to head to Emmaus, but in many ways, they're walking away from the city of all these promises. Instead of going uh, into, staying in Jerusalem, they're, they're hopeless at this point, and they're leaving all these promises behind. This is why of all the places and all the stories that Jesus intersected his disciples as the risen Jesus, this story made scripture because there's something more at play here than two people, one of them we don't even know the name of, heading from one place to the other. So Jerusalem represented hope, the promises of God. And here they leave, they're leaving hope, they're leaving the promises of God. And where are they headed? They're headed to Emmaus. Now, if you're not a history nerd, um, then this will only take me 30 seconds. But if you are a history nerd, this will be a great 30 seconds that I think you'll appreciate. Um, Emmaus was a profound village that had a lot of symbolism. What happened in Emmaus? Well, right before Jesus entered the scene, there was another potential Messiah that the people of Israel thought, maybe this is the king, maybe this is the one, maybe this is the answer to all of our promises, the Messiah that we've been looking for. His name was Judas Maccabeus, and Judas Maccabeus was a Jewish priest who eventually became a military leader, and what he did was he overthrew the Greek empire at the time, and the Greeks had moved into the temple, and they had desecrated the temple of God. They brought in all these Greek gods and goddesses, and they'd completely desecrated the temple, so Judas Maccabeus has this epic battle. It's actually listed as one of the, the 50 most influential battles in the history of the world. And it's where the Jewish, uh, the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah comes from this. Judas Maccabeus, what he does is he overthrows the Greeks and the battle that was fought, guess where it took place? 
the village of Emmaus. So the village of Emmaus represented for the Jewish people hope and military victory and strength. And not just that, but there are these natural hot springs in Emmaus. And so it was kind of like a resort town. If you wanted to unplug from life, if your job was tough and you needed a vacation, then you would walk the short distance over to the village of Emmaus. So Emmaus represents, unlike Jerusalem, which was the promises of God, Emmaus represents human strength. And it represents um, th- this, this uh, re- relaxation and unplugging and human comfort. So here you have these two disciples, track with this, they're leaving from the, villi- from the city of Jerusalem, from the city of hope, and they're headed to, man, we just got to have some comfort. We just got to have some hope again. And maybe Judas Maccabeus was the guy that we were looking for because the one we thought was going to be the answer just got murdered on a cross. And they're filled, they're filled with profound sadness. Look at this in verse 17. Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. They're not just filled with sadness, they're also overwhelmed by injustice and suffering. Look at verse 19. This is, in, this is big to kind of peer into their heart. Jesus said to them, what, what things? And they said to him, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in word and deed before God and all the people and how our chief priests and our rulers, they delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. So here you have these disciples. They'd left everything to follow this Messiah. They'd given up their lives to follow this Messiah. And here they are, and they're just overwhelmed with sadness. And they're saying things. They don't realize it's Jesus that they're talking to, but they're like, man, our own rulers put him to death. Like Caiaphas, the high priest, he put him to death. And, and Pontius Pilate, the ruler of the Romans, he put him to death. And Herod, our own king, the king of the Jews, put this potential Messiah to death. What is going on with the world? They're just completely overwhelmed with sadness. And it's almost like the pain in the world, the loss in the world is too much for them to carry. They're overwhelmed. And then finally, the last thing with these disciples is their, their hope is actually hanging on by a thread. Look at verse 21. It said these words, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we had, we had hoped. We don't hope now. We had hoped. We left everything to follow him, hoping that he was the one, hoping he was going to take us there. He was going to take, take the victory and kick out the Romans and bring peace and shalom. We thought he was the one. We had hoped, but he isn't the one. He died. They're overwhelmed with sadness and grief. Now, I just want you to pause here for just a minute. This is not just a story about two disciples. Can't you put yourself in this story? It's not hard, is it, to, to, to realize that they're marked by this disillusionment and pain. And at one point in their life, there was hope and there was excitement and they were following Jesus. They were willing to give it all away. And now where they are in their journey of faith is does this even matter anymore? What is going on? This is incredibly painful and the loss is just too much for them to bear. They're leaving Jerusalem to head to this other place, Emmaus. There's a, there's a great little book by a guy named Henry Nouwen. If you've never read Henry Nouwen, you should do yourself a favor and, and read some Henry Nouwen. But he had a great little book on this passage in Luke 24 called With Burning Hearts that I read this week and it was so helpful. He said this about loss that I think you and I can relate to. He says, if there is any word that summarizes well our pain, it is the word of loss. We have lost so much. Sometimes it even seems that life is just one long series of losses. 
When we were born, we lost the safety of the womb. When we went to school, we lost the security of our family life. When we got our first job, we lost the freedom of our youth. When we got married or ordained, we lost the joy of many options. And when we grew old, we lost our good looks, our old friends, or our fame. When we became weak or ill, we lost our physical independence. And when we die, we will lose it all. And these losses are a part of the ordinary life. But whose life is ordinary? The losses that settle themselves deeply in our hearts and our minds are the losses of intimacy through separations, the loss of safety through violence, the loss of innocence through abuse, the loss of friends through betrayal, the loss of love through abandonment, the loss of home through war, the loss of well-being through hunger or heat or cold, the loss of children through illness or accidents, the loss of country through political upheaval, and the loss of life through earthquakes, floods, plane crashes, bombings, and diseases. The world is filled with loss. And maybe you're young and maybe you don't sense this or feel this quite yet, but there's something that happens over time that life has a way of beating the hope out of you, doesn't it? It has a way of beating the joy out of you and you begin to just be overwhelmed by the pain and by the loss. And I'm looking around this room and I know not everybody's story, but I know a lot of your stories and like thinking about your husband was not supposed to leave and he did. And your child was not supposed to die, and they did. And your marriage wasn't supposed to fall apart, but it did. And your, ch- your child wasn't supposed to run off and sin, but she did. And all these other, like addiction wasn't supposed to be a part of your story, and it is. And there's all these things and all this pain, and you're kind of sitting here in the pain and in the loss, and it's easy to feel like these two disciples. You're like, man, maybe I should just leave Jerusalem and head to Emmaus and find some comfort. And in the middle of this pain, we tend to ask Jesus the most ironic question. Look at verse 18. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? This is the question that we ask in middle life of God. Are you the only one who doesn't get it? Are you the only one who hasn't seen my my life fall apart? Do you not know that I got a painful doctor's report? Do you not know that my child is living in rebellion? Do you not know that I I didn't expect to land here and here I am, it's painful. Did you not, where are you? Are you the only one who doesn't know? And the irony of this question, friends, the the irony of this question is that Jesus, in fact, in this story, is the only one who actually knows what has happened. They don't even know. This is the pain of middle life. Now here's the other question. What is Jesus doing for people that find themselves on the road away from faith headed towards Emmaus? What is he up to? What is Jesus doing when he finds you and you're in that place of disillusionment and you're in that place of despair and the honeymoon is over and the pain is there and the loss is there and and you're just kind of asking God, are you the only one who doesn't know? What is Jesus doing in that moment? We'll look at verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Friends, it should not shock us, but here's the truth. What God in Jesus loves to do when you are in the middle of this pain is he loves to draw near to you. You are walking away out of hope, out of pain, out of loss, and you're headed just to find some comfort, some victory somewhere else when you are on that road away from faith. Where is Jesus? He is drawing near to you to be with you. 
But often what's happening with them is what's happening with us. Look at verse 16. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Sometimes it's not that he's not there, but it's that you just don't see the ways that he is there. You're so filled with pain or disillusionment or busyness or whatever that you don't realize that he's actually the, the, the one traveling with you on the road. He just wants to be near you. You're asking, where are you? And he, he is there. He's with you. He, he knows you. He's, he's dialoguing with you. He's calling out to you. He's, he wants to be with you. And sometimes you just don't see. This is our story. He draws near and he wants to have us encounter him on the road. Now, there's not just a, an encounter, there's also an invitation, and I'll be brief with this, but the invitation that I want you to see is to deeper communion. Because these disciples, they thought they had a knowledge of who this Messiah was. They thought they had a relationship with this Messiah. They thought they'd had it all figured out. But here's the truth, friends. They did not fully have the right type of relationship with him that they needed. Their relationship with this Messiah was surface level, and it was based on some preconceived ideas of who they thought he would be a political leader, a military king, someone that's going to conquer all of our enemies and kick Rome out. So they had their own vision and version of who they thought this Jesus would be. And what Jesus wants to do is invite them into deeper communion. How does he invite you and I and them into deeper communion? Well, here's how it starts. It starts with a loving rebuke. I love this. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, this is after they've kind of given their spiel, and they're just sitting there sad, bent backs, looking at the ground. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And I love this. Beginning with Moses, this is the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know the thing that he does to, to kind of draw near to them and invite them into deeper communion? It starts with a painful rebuke where he looks them in the eyes and he's like, hey, you had an idea of what you thought I was gonna be. You had this concept of what you thought it was gonna be to follow me in this life. But what you thought versus what reality is are two very different things. And so, oh foolish ones, have you not read? And he starts in Genesis and in the most epic Bible study you've ever been a part of, goes all the way through Malachi and and it says, look, I was supposed to suffer here. I was talking about suffering here. I'm the suffering servant here. I'm the one that's gonna die here and rise again here. I'm the suffering servant. And he begins to reframe their expectations of who God is and the story that they're a part of. That's exactly what he does with us in our pain. As he comes to us and he lovingly, he rebukes us and he says, hey, your eyes are fixed on this and, and your brokenness and the pain and the loss. And what he wants to do is he actually wants to, through his word, lift your eyes and realize that you are a part of a bigger story where you are not the point. He is the point. And what he's doing is actually intentionally writing your story. And even though you're wondering, where are you? And do you even care about me? He's there on the road with you. And what you don't realize is all the pain and all the hurt and all the suffering. God actually knows and he's with you. And he's writing a story of redemption through those things. That's what he's doing in his death and in his resurrection. What they thought was the greatest loss of their life was actually the greatest victory. They expected Jesus to come in and kick out the Romans. Do you know what Jesus wanted to do? He wanted to save the Romans. They thought the greatest enemies, uh, the, the political enemies that they had would be destroyed. Jesus wanted to destroy their enemies of Satan, sin, and death. 
And often we have these expectations of God that are not accurate, not right, not biblical, and our life goes a different way, and we kind of, where are you, is the, is the response. And what God does in his loving, gracious patience is he comes to us and he says, hey, you're missing it, oh foolish ones. And he lifts their eyes off of themselves and puts them on himself. And then this invitation to deeper communion, it even goes further. Look at this in verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, Emmaus, and he acted as if he were going further. I love Jesus. He's like, the whole time, he's like putting on a show. You know, he's like, oh, I've got a little ways to go. And like, well, no, stay, stay. They, he acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Now let me pause there. They think that they're the ones hosting Jesus. They're the ones inviting him in. But look at the irony of this, verse 30. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Who's hosting who? They invited Jesus in, but he's actually the one who is hosting. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. That is really weird, but it happened. And then they said to each other, I love this phrase, listen to this. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Did not our hearts burn? You see, here's the, the, the deeper invitation in this phase of your discipleship, in this phase of your life. What Jesus wants to do, he wants to meet you on the road and he wants to sometimes even lovingly rebuke you and say, no, you've got it all wrong. This is not how it's supposed to go. Let me tell you how it's supposed to go. And then he wants you to invite him in, not because he wants you to host him, but he wants to come and he wants to host you. He wants to offer his life to you. He wants to offer his presence to you. See, they're encountering Jesus both in his word and in his presence. And do you know what the result of that encounter was? It was the burning heart that they had. When they first met Jesus, they had a version of a burning heart. And now their burning heart is a mature burning heart because they've seen the real Jesus, who he really is, the suffering servant who died and rose again. And their hearts are just burning inside of them. You see, the greatest thing that you want if you're a follower of Jesus in your middle life is a burning heart again, isn't it? It's a burning heart. I want my heart to burn. I used to, I used to be in my room weeping for you. I used to pray. I used to read my Bible. I used to fall. I want to give all of it away. And now life has beat me up and all I want to do is I just want to have a burning heart again. Do you know, do you know how you get a burning heart? It's by inviting Jesus in to dine with you, to be with you, to give his presence to you. A new car will not give you a burning heart. A new spouse will not give you a burning heart. A new life, a new career, a new job, it will not give you a burning, a burning heart. The only thing that will give you a burning heart is the presence of Jesus in his word and there with you offering himself to you. And this is the invitation to us for mature, mature discipleship. So, where do we go from here? Well, the story ends, and I don't have time to read it all, but what I love about it is in verse 33, guess what they do? They return to Jerusalem. Like, you know what? We're, we're gonna go back to the city of faith, back to hope, back to the promises, and they're invited back into the community of the disciples, and then they go out to live on mission. So this burning heart encounter with Jesus is what propels them forward in community and then forward into mission in the world, and this is his invitation to you. So let me just close by, the, by saying this. Some of you are in this room, and your, your faith in Christianity, your faith in Jesus is hanging by a thread, it's hanging by a thread. Life has beat you up. People have wounded you. Things have happened that never were supposed to happen. And the question that you're asking God is, are you the only one who doesn't get it? 
Some of you in this room, you are disillusioned. Some of you in this room, you, are, you, you feel like, man, if I could just find some comfort and some victory because my life is marked by loss. Some of you, the death of the honeymoon is a recent feeling and, and it's painful and you're just sitting in all of this pain and your eyes are so turned inward that you can't even focus on anything else. If that is you and you are here, Jesus is with you on the road as you walk away. And he's inviting you, he's talking to you, he's inviting you to lift your eyes off of yourself and to fix them on his word. And he's inviting you to say, hey, just let me come in and dine with you. I wanna serve you, I wanna give my presence to you. Some of you, the most bold prayer you could pray today is Jesus, will you come in and stay with me? Jesus, will you come in and stay with me? Will you, will you speak truth to me again? Will you give me a burning heart? That's the most sincere, honest prayer that you can pray. So I'd invite you to stand with me if you would.